We're studying truth in the Psalms, and today we come to a very serious problem. And the problem is this, truth in our age is particularly unwelcome. In, in particular, you and I live in a time when evil often cannot be so designated, at least not without facing difficulty. As I mentioned to you last week, calling evil what it is has become terribly unpopular. Increasingly, horrible sexual sins are referred to as mere alternate lifestyles, right? Islamic terrorism cannot be called what it is. Evil, that's what it all is, but we're not supposed to call a spade a spade. And most damaging of all, you know this, right? My own sin tendencies are recast as, as products of my environment or my genetics for which I am not responsible, right? That's us. It's not just other people who struggle with the reticence to call evil what it is. We all are guilty of this brand of untruth. As Augustine wrote a long time ago, we love the truth when it enlightens us and we despise the truth when it accuses us, close quote. This has always been a huge human problem, which is not to say that our day doesn't have its own ugly expressions. I was corresponding with a friend of mine about how our culture finds it hard to designate evil and he wrote a brilliant note. In fact, I thought it was so brilliant, I copied it in your bulletin. Look in your bulletin, you'll see this note from my friend. He said, Wayne, this is a very relevant topic. By God's grace and indwelling spirit, our very souls see, know, and long for righteousness. Yet daily, we are inundated with psychotic babble posing as truth. Veiled in plastic virtue, the intelligentsia extolled confusion, making truth relative, wrong, fashionable, and right a matter of opinion. All while the world buys its approval. One can feel like the only limbing that sees the big yellow signs. Warning! Cliff ahead! Close quote. Isn't that well said? Very well said. Again, this isn't just a modern problem. Listen, in some ways, I think it was even more difficult under the often oppressive monarchies of earlier times. But in all times, in all times when evil is called good, when the very idea of righteousness is persecuted, when a culture is running like lemmings off of a cliff of lies, the Bible has the answer. In Scripture, God leads His people to employ the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms. Of course, as you are no doubt asking in that Assyrian emperor accent that you love to throw down, what is an imprecatory psalm? Thank you. I'm so glad you asked. Imprecatory psalms call down judgment on the enemies of Yahweh or His people. That's it. An imprecation is calling down truth, calling down judgment on enemies of God and His people. Psalm 69 is probably the best known of the imprecatory psalms. They appear, by the way, they appear in all of the Bible. Imprecation appears throughout the Bible, but it's especially bold in a number of the psalms. The word imprecation is a Latin term. It was invented to describe these psalms. They took two words and put them together, Latin in and a word for pray. And they put it together, imprecor, which means to, to call down truth, to pray for truth. You're praying God reveals justice, truth in this situation. Sadly, very few people today understand the imprecatory storms and how important they are. How important they are for times when truth is being perverted. Let, let me put it this way. Few of us in this age pray according to God's truth. And that modern confusion leads to a misunderstanding and misapprehension of God's truth altogether. It leads to articles like this. I want to read to you an article from last Christmas. This is a satirical article from the Babylon Bee. Okay, from the Babylon Bee, here, listen to this brilliant satire. Galveston, Texas. 
According to sources, local family the Fullers mistakenly selected a violent imprecatory psalm as their chosen verse for this year's Christmas card, which was mailed to all their friends, family, and co-workers. The verse in question is Psalm 58.6, which reads, O God, shatter the teeth in their mouths, according to witnesses who received a copy of the card. The trouble started when the Fullers reportedly chose to save time this year by uploading a family photo and a Bible verse to this online service, which automatically creates and mails custom-designed Christmas cards to the addresses provided. We decided on Psalm, uh, Psalm 86.8, but I must have fat-fingered it when I typed in which verse number I wanted to print on the cards, horrified patriarch Jim Fuller told reporters. Psalm 86.8 would have been great. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. But instead, I've got Aunt Shirley calling to ask what kind of sick weirdos we are. The Fullers plan to use, listen to this, here's how they close the article. The Fullers plan to use a New Testament verse next year to avoid a similar problem. We'll pick something Jesus said. He always spoke kind words of gentleness, Jim noted. Please catch that last line. It is the funniest part of the satire. As you probably know, Jesus actually used imprecation often. Yes, you heard me. Jesus quoted the imprecatory psalms, nearly every one of them, and he used imprecations of his own device. Why would he do that? Because that's how God's people are supposed to speak when everything's backwards. This is how God's people are supposed to pray and think when, when evil seems triumphant. Let me, let me show you. Open your Bible to Psalm 58, the, uh, the one that ended up on that fictitious family's Christmas card. Okay. Open your Bible to Psalm 58, and let's read verses 10 and 11. Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. The righteous one will rejoice when he sees the retribution. That means the justice, and, and in the context, it's the justice of God, the retribution of God. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, yes, there is a reward for the righteous. There is a God who judges on the earth. Why does God want us to pray something that sounds so horrible as that? Why does He want us to pray with imprecation? Psalm 58 teaches we pray this way because God is just. God is righteous. That's the point in verse 11. It's also the, the first headline you'll find in your notes. Look on the left side of your notes. We pray this way because God is just and righteous. Psalm 7 has a very similar statement. Uh, Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows His wrath every day. God hates sin. He will judge it. Ultimately, yes, but God also judges sin here and now on earth. For example, in Romans chapter 1, we learn the base setting of all human beings ever since sin entered creation. Romans 1, starting in verse 21, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. As a result, God judges not only in eternity, but during this life. The rest of Romans chapter 1 describes how God delivers people over to the consequences of sin. Verse 28 is indicative of the whole chapter. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. Now, listen, we're going to see in a moment how God uses these consequences he uses them to prepare people for his amazing salvation because he loves people. He actually does this because he loves them. But for now, just catch the bottom line here. God hates sin. We must hate sin as well. 
in ourselves and in others. The imprecatory psalms connect us to this bedrock truth. They allow us to remember and express truth about holiness and about sin. Our Puritan forefathers had a great word for this. They called it mortification. It's a word that's hardly ever used today, so we got to say it together. On the count of three, you get to say mortification. One, two, three, mortification. Uh, I put a definition of mortification in your notes. Take a look. Mortification is the practice of calling sin what it is. It is killing. Uh, by the way, mors is an old Latin word that means death. That's why, that's why it's mordor in, in uh, the Lord of the Rings, right? It's death. It's a place of death. Uh, more, a lot of Latin in today's sermon. Uh, Mors is old Latin for killing. Mortification is killing the hold of sin in my flesh. Killing the hold of sin by honest appraisal and self-disciplined correction. If you want to read more about this, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4. It is such a marvelous thing. Mortification is beautiful. I tell you, it is delightful once you've experienced it, and it is why so many of us are so concerned today, because today sin is very, very rarely called sin. Sin is rarely mortified, and mortifying can set people free. It is freeing to live honestly, to no longer hide and excuse sin. It is exhilarating to partner with God's Spirit and God's people in the fight against your own evil tendencies. And listen, the focus is not negative. When we mortify, we're motivated by God's love. We want to be like Him who has saved us. We hunger, we thirst after righteousness. That's why we hate sin. And that's why we pray imprecations. Because God is just and righteous and we want all people. Look at your text. We want all people to enjoy the reward for the righteous and avoid the consequences of sin. More on that in a moment. First, note a second truth about imprecation. This one is headlined atop the right side of our notes. We pray this way because we're scared. We pray this way because we're scared and we need God. Look up here, Psalm 140, verses 4 and 5. Protect me, Lord, from the clutches of the wicked. Keep me safe from violent men who plan to make me stumble. The proud hide a trap with ropes for me. They spread a net along the path and set snares for me. This world is really scary. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. The world is scary. The truth is there is evil all around us and within us. And evil people set traps for other people. It's what they do. Psalm 714 summarizes the idea with majestic poetry. Listen to this. Verse 14 of Psalm 7. See? The wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. Isn't that insightful? This scary world houses many people who are pregnant with evil, and the system covers it all over with deceit. Now, much of that evil is expressed through traps, basically two kinds of traps, physical and emotional. Um, physical traps are like uh, alcohol, uh, other drugs, terrible traps. They have snared millions and millions of victims. Uh, running away from home is a physical trap, kids. It looks like freedom, but it often leads, often leads directly to the trap of human slavery, which then can be used as a lure to trap other people in a self-perpetuating nightmare of pornography and prostitution. Of course, other traps are emotional. For example, just think about how you fight, okay? Just, just think for a minute about how you fight ugly, hard arguments when you have them. When we fight, here's what we usually do. We usually are saying that some issue is more important than that other person, which is patently unbiblical. 
no toothpaste cap. Isn't that what you fight over? No toothpaste cap, no election, no major legislation matters more than a human being, a person made in the image of God. That's not to say that we shouldn't have healthy arguments. We should. We must. It's scriptural. We must be able to disagree, make funny faces at each other, often even strongly. But the Bible shows that we can disagree without being disagreeable. And yet humans don't often practice such honesty. Instead, you know what we do. We set emotional snares for each other. We set traps, just like Psalm 140 describes. And I see this often among Christians. You see, Christians like to ask the other person questions that back the other person into a moral corner. And then once they've achieved their purpose, they can set up a situation where if you disagree with their perspective, you basically are the moral equivalency of Satan worship, right? Or Christians try to pretend that they're confronting sin in a brother, but all the while they're merely trying to make themselves look holy. The, the, the sinful brother they're confronting is just a foil, something they're using to deflect attention away from their own wretchedness. See this all the time. All that to say, the world is full of nasty traps and not just outside of churches. And that's why we pray the imprecatory psalms, because we are rightfully scared. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a great note about Psalm 140. David wrote me and he said, Wayne, praying this way shows a manifest sense of helplessness in the face of evil and an unqualified dependence on the mercy of God. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team added this. He said, we pray this way because though frightened... We know that our Almighty Father loves us and will always do what is in our best interest. That's why we pray to Him these imprecations. We know that our Almighty Father hears us. He will protect us according to His glory and plan, and He gives us peace. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. These guys are right. Thus, if you are not regularly praying imprecatory psalms, and quite frankly, very few people do. If you're not praying curses on evil as a regular part of your life, it begs this question, why not? Why not? Scripture shows you to. This is how we're to pray. Why don't, think, think, is the world full of snares? Yes or no? Is the world full of snares? Yes or no? Yet manifestly so. In writer Andrew Peterson's fantastic phrase, we are dancing in the minefields. Is God just and righteous? Does, does God care about right and wrong and about his people? Yes or no? Does he? Yes or no? Yes, we learned that in Psalm 58. Then, if you know that the world is wretched and you know the almighty and gracious God, why would you not pray this way? You should. One other thought before we leave Psalm 140, and this is a supposition I want to share with you. Just, just think about this for a minute. Suppose that your parents' Bible study is meeting in the Matthews house, okay? The Matthews big fancy house that, that sits right beside the green belt in your, in your hometown. And all the kids, all of you kids have been playing in the basement, but for some reason you all got the idea to sneak up the stairs of the basement and go listen in on the adult Bible study, okay? And suppose that their Bible study, that particular Sunday afternoon at their adult Bible study group, their Bible study is on Psalm 140. And as you hear Psalm 140, verses 4 and 5, those verses about traps, it gives you a wonderful, terrible idea. <laughs> Suppose then you go out to the green belt and there's a path where all the, all the grown-ups like to walk after they've had their dinner. They eat dinner after Bible study and, and they like to walk off their dinner there. 
And there's a place, you've been watching it for weeks, there's a place where there's some erosion and the, and the, and the creek has cut a little bank into the path. And you get a bunch of dead reeds, just suppose. You get a bunch of dead reeds that have been growing there down by the creek and they're all dried out and old and you get the other kids to help you and you take all those reeds and you lay them over the cutaway and you put them right down really smooth and then you get a bunch of mud from the creek and you spread it all over it and you get grass clippings from the park and you put that all over the top of it and you even put a couple of living plants right there and it's awesome! It looks just like the path, okay? And then you guys hide in the bushes and you wait. And then the old people come out after Bible study to walk off their dinner. Suppose, just supposing in this scenario, that your dad is in the lead. And your dad steps right smack dab in the middle of the trap and slides 12 feet in the mud down into the creek below. And when all the kids are jumping and cheering, let me just advise you to do this. Run. <laughs> Run for your life. Because I can just, I can just tell you that wet belts hurt more than dry ones. <laughs> they do. And ultimately what you have done is prove that you are just as wicked as everyone else, right? And you have proved that the imprecatory psalms make a lot of sense. And that unfortunately not hypothetical story takes us to our next point. We pray this way because it recalibrates our hearts. We recognize that we are trap setters as well. Now, we already touched on this with mortification, but there's much more to learn from Psalms like 69. Psalm 69, look at verses 4 and 5. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. God, you know my foolishness, and my guilty acts are not hidden from you. In hard situations like, like divorce and lawsuits, persecution, rejection. The Christian faces two problems. Christian has two problems in those really tough situations. Number one is having to forgive other people's sin. And number two is having to face our own sinfulness. This psalm deals with each problem. First, forgiveness is a must. It is not an option. Just as we are forgiven by God through the sacrifice of Jesus, we must forgive others through the power of Christ. Jesus was adamant about this. Matthew chapter 18, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him. And I wonder if he paused there and Peter's like, oh, good, I can get away with four, right? Not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Forgiveness is a must. It's not an option, but it is also hard especially when the person who has wounded me is powerful, isn't sorry, and is still committed to evil. Look at the very last line of 69 verse 4. Though I did not steal, I must repay. Somebody else did wrong, I have to make it right. That is a perfect description of forgiving someone who has done evil to me, and often I don't want to. I get tired of being the only adult in the room. All the other childish haters out there outnumber the hairs on my head. I want to be childish too. I want to nurse my grievances. I want to revel in my victimhood. I want to, I want to refuse to, to repay. I want to refuse to forgive. I want to just be a victim forever, right? Thankfully, God loves me too much to allow that. Forgiveness is a must. I must repay. Otherwise, Lord knows, I trust you know as well. Otherwise, it will only destroy my own soul as I sink ever and ever deeper in bitterness. That doesn't mean there are no consequences for sin. 
That's not the case for those who harm us any more than it is for us. Psalm 69, if you read all of it, it goes on to describe serious consequences for sin. But forgiveness reaches beyond consequences. It doesn't remove consequences, but it reaches beyond them. In his fantastic book, Forgive and Forget, Lewis Smead said that forgiveness, get this, this is great. Forgiveness is like paying off a car loan for another person. Most of us, think, think about the image, most of us cannot afford the price of a new car. So we go in and, and we make a down payment and, and sign the papers and then we set up monthly installments, right? Legally, once that original amount is put down and we sign the papers, the buyer owns the car. That is the way scripture describes our choice to forgive. By the way, forgiveness is a legal term in the Bible. It's a forensic term. It means to wish the other person well. We wish someone well when we sign off on forensic forgiveness. But that's not all there is to it. Think again about the car. We've got to make regular payments until that car is paid off, right? And those monthly payments can be hard. They're especially rough since forgiveness means you're making the payments for someone else. That's verse 4. Though I didn't steal, or in our car image, I didn't purchase, I must repay. And I've got to make all the payments. That means I choose to wish them well every single time this issue comes up. And that's why you and I need to recalibrate our hearts. As we pointed out, our default unforgiving setting is exaltation of victimhood. But if we will engage with God, He will change us and He will, I promise you, He will empower us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Which takes us to verse 5. Look at verse 5. One of God's tools to make me forgive is to point out how much I need forgiveness. I have to own up to, to my own sin and my own need to seek forgiveness. Self-awareness is critical. Verse 5 is the antidote to our self-righteous victimhood. And that's a major concern in America today. Everyone is so busy trumpeting their victimhood or their made-up pretend victimhood that they never forgive. And thus they just get more and more bitter every day. What all Americans need are recalibrated hearts that see how much we each victimize other people. How we need forgiveness for our own sins. Without a reset to God's true north, like what David describes in verse 5. You know what will happen? We'll remain off course and we will crash on the rocks of bitterness. I was in a group chat about this issue, and Tracy Bush sent me this historical note. Uh, Tracy wrote me, said, Wayne, heart recalibration is the theme of a book I'm reading, uh, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. Smith tells this story. I haven't read the book, but I really like this story. He says this. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, in thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid winter waters of the Atlantic. While it was Osmond Berry, captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for over five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson, and here's a quote from the Times, Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. By the way, just a quick hint, kids. Anytime your defense is everybody's doing it, you're in real trouble. Just a, just a thought. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. Uh, end of the quote from the New York Times, Smith goes on. 
The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. This realization partly explains a heart-rending picture recorded by the Times. Later, the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. He wraps up with this. The reminder for us is this. We need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the Creator, our magnetic north. All God's people said, God is just and holy. So here's what we do. We recalibrate our hearts by seeing sin as sin. Not excusing even one degree of variation from God's ideal. And we ask forgiveness. And we forgive as we have been forgiven. That's recalibration. That leads to the next point in our notes. We pray this way. Because we want even our enemies to find peace in Yahweh. Even our enemies, we want them to find peace in Yahweh. Psalm 83, 16 speaks for a whole bunch of imprecatory verses. Cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Yahweh. So that they will seek your name. We pray for people who are wrong to see they're wrong. To be horribly ashamed. Not because we hate them. We pray their teeth are shattered so they will see their need and seek the Lord. His covenant character provides the salvation that people need. His judgments are designed. You know what his judgments are designed to do? To expose our need. That's why understanding sin is so desperately important. When we try to change God's rules regarding right and wrong, we rob people of the blessing of finding out the truth that they're lost, that they're off course, that they're in sin. Now, why do I call that a blessing? Because you can't get found until you realize that you're lost. Two degrees of variance will lead to a shipwreck. Yet Psalm 83, 16 is badly miscast today. I, even in churches, this is miscast and misunderstood, which again makes me think of our forebears, the Puritans. You know, later generations gave the Puritans a pretty bad reputation. In fact, in the 20th century, it was said, and I quote, Puritanism is the fear that someone somewhere is having fun, which is funny, but it's not true. Puritanism is a desire to be real about sin so that people will turn to God and thus have real fun forever. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember Jesus' ethic? Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. Read it with me. Uh, Matthew 5, 44, all together. Let's read it together. Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Thank you. Given that Jesus understood imprecations, given that Jesus used imprecation, Matthew 5.44 could include prayers that your enemies are wounded, that they are wounded so they will become aware of their need for healing, a healing that only God can provide them. Cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Yahweh. When I receive letters from Christians who are persecuted, this is often the tone they take. Our brethren right now around the world who are in oppressive Hindu and Muslim lands often ask us to, to pray for them. And they often ask this. The letters I get say, pray that they will be shattered precisely so that they will turn to Jesus who loves them. I get letters that say, Wayne, please pray for our enemies whom we love even though they beat us and abuse us. Pray that they will be broken and in pain so that they will find out that God loves them and Jesus died to pay for their sin. Let you behind the curtain of the elder meeting here for just a moment. When we elders have a meeting, 
and we privately in our elders meeting are praying for people in our church who have become committed to sin, this is what we pray. We pray for them to be broken. Often we pray for them to be painfully broken so that they will return to the Lord who loves them. And we have seen it happen. And it's beautiful. I've seen the Lord do exactly that for me. When I was a young cocky wrestler, I was a fairly new believer in Christ, and I had a fascinating conversation, actually a couple of series of conversations with God, where I told Him that I needed to set Him aside. I didn't have time to spend reading the Bible, thinking about Him, being discipled, growing up in Christ. I knew that was doable as part of my whole life, but I needed to put every bit of my energy into winning Olympic gold. And then once that Olympic gold was done, then God and I could pick up where we had left off. After all, and I said this, I said this to the God of the universe who saves my soul. I said, quote, after all, you're lucky to have me on your team. And so God broke my neck, literally. I spent four months in traction, and I never wrestled again. But in that hospital bed, hurting, mad at God, I began to listen to Scripture. I especially began to listen to a book that you should read and know well called Habakkuk in your Old Testament. And I began to listen to the Psalms, a number of these Psalms that you and I have looked at today. And I realized something amazing that God was actually loving me. He was loving me enough to remove these false idols that I had erected, idols that were keeping me away from Him. My Father loves me. That's why He wouldn't let me just run off the cliff with all the other lemmings. He drew me to Him first. He didn't want me to be off track. My shattered bones were a blessing from Him. So with that in mind, go back to our satirical Christmas card. That's actually a very loving card, isn't it? It's a really sweet sentiment because at its core, all pain is a gift that points wise people to find peace in Yahweh. Now, not all will turn to Him, but those who do are going to be blessed beyond any Olympic medal. They're going to find glories beyond their wildest dreams. Thus, ultimately, we pray this way. We pray imprecation because it leads people to God's praises. Listen, uh, Psalm 7, verses 15 through 17. He, talking about the psalmist's enemy, dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head, and his violence falls on top of his head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of Yahweh the Most High. Notice how, how this imprecatory prayer results in singing praise to Yahweh. Why? Because God is just. The first thing that we learned about imprecation is here. God works His righteous plan in every life, in all times, even beyond time and space, and that is worthy of praise. And there's another kind of situation that leads to praising God. Look back to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verses 29 through 33. But I'm afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. God's person is heard. Yahweh hears even, undeser even undeserving people like you and me. He hears us because he is just and he is merciful. Fascinatingly, just knowing that God hears makes David begin his praise. Look, he trusts the salvation mentioned in verse 29, right? 
But so far, it appears no circumstance has changed for him. And yet, even still a prisoner, he praises the name of God. He thanks God for God's character. His heart is revived. Why? Not because any circumstance is different, because Yahweh hears. And that is more than enough. The merciful God cares. One of the intriguing truths about the imprecatory psalms, the imprecatory prayers throughout the Bible, is they always result in praise. Why? Because they help us realize that God is in control, that He loves us, and that He will manage every situation for good. Pastor Tim Keller penned a great devotional thought on praise in the imprecatory psalms. He's talking about Psalm 69 in his book, The Songs of Jesus, and Tim Keller says this, What do we do? when we are afflicted and in pain. Usually we give in to self-pity, bitterness, fear, or envy. David, however, does not fall into any of these things because he has an understanding of life that encompasses suffering. And he uses suffering to glorify God. Praise to God is an antidote to the self-absorption that can overtake us when we suffer. This not only honors God, it encourages others. When suffering... Don't get sucked down into yourself. Turn outward in praise to God and minister to those in need, close quote. Do you know in the New Testament, large portions of Psalm 69 were applied to Messiah Jesus? Thus, just as Jesus praised the Father in his pain, so those of us who are in Jesus, we also can praise God. It's the end result of our pain. And that's just what we're going to do, by the way, this morning. We're going to praise God together, but first, first, Let me ask you the most important question you will ever be asked. You ready? Most important question you will ever be asked in your life. Are you in Jesus? That means, have you you let him incorporate you into his family? That comes by faith alone, trust alone in Jesus, God the Son. You know what he did? He died for you on the cross to pay for your sin. He took all the pain of life so that You could be free. And then he rose from the dead so that you could follow him in everlasting life. Pray with me. Let's pray now. Listen, friend, as we're all praying, I just want to encourage you to do this. If you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, do so right now. Pray to God who loves you, who provides salvation. First, do this first. Thank him for pain. I know you've experienced pain in your life. Everyone has. And I know it sounds weird, but it's the beauty of imprecation. Thank him for it. Because quite frankly, if it weren't for pain, you would probably be off chasing some silly metal somewhere when you should be engaging with God as you do those good things. If it weren't for pain, you probably would think you're doing just great on your own, that you make a fine God, that you can handle this life and the life to come without him. Thank him for pain because you know what it does? It shows you and it shows me our need. Now listen, your need has been met. Every need has been met in Jesus. God the Son who came to this earth and died on the cross and rose from the dead so that everyone who trusts him would have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just talk to God and just confess, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand right now. Let me rejoice with you. Good. Father, I pray for all of these who are Christians. And I ask you to encourage those who are new and old and let them ask very hard questions. In fact, Christian, listen, as everybody's praying, let me ask you a question. You Christians in here, let me just put this to you. Are you engaging honestly with God? 
Or are you just whitewashing out all the imprecations in the Bible because it's not politically correct? Are you seeing the world and the Lord truthfully? If you are, if you see the world truthfully and God honestly, why are you not praying the imprecatory Psalms? Lord, we do so right now. We pray according to your justice. We pray because we're scared and we need you. We, pr we pray to recalibrate our hearts about sins. Lord, we pray for our enemies. We want our enemies to come to know you. And that takes us inexorably to praise you, God. We praise you, Lord. We praise you in words and deeds. We praise you in our giving. We praise you in our receiving. We praise you. All God's people said, amen. amen.